This is Dan Dunn, former Seton Hall Pirate from 1979 to 83, and you're listening to Left Coast Pirates. seconds to go down by two. Here's Whitehead. Guarded by Ochefu. Gets the step into the lane. Goes to the bucket. Layup. Rolls around and in. And a foul! Whitehead ties the game! Pow! From Trenton! Woo! What Trenton makes, the world takes! From just west of the Ward Place Gate in San Diego, California, he is Mike Deziri, class of 2001. I am Tom Kaharski, class of 1997, and we are Left Coast Pirates. Welcome to Left Coast Pirates Live. He is Mike Deziri. I'm Tom Kaharski, and we're here to do what we love doing best, talking about Pirates basketball. Mike, how you doing this fine morning? Good morning, Tommy. I'm frustrated, man. I mean, this is the season preview episode, and normally I'm up late at night working on some type of like profound monologue for oh, you. Profound, gotcha. <laughs> I'm trying to find. I'm trying to find something normally that like parallels the previous season to connect the dots for where the season might be heading this year. Ultimately, for you to end up calling me crazy anyway, because because you, you don't buy into any of my nonsense, and then we end up settling on something like you know contrite like the drive for five and then it is or if not now when if not now when mikey and and then last year tom it just turned into just what if right you know that the season comes to an end we have all the frustration of the coronavirus and for me it created this huge void and i'm, I'm sorry but all the simulations and i you know how much i love recruiting talk all the recruiting talk over the summer and all those summer series interviews that were just a blast were not enough for me. It, it's not enough to fill the void of the way we ended last season. I, I'm sorry, but for me, being a Seton Hall basketball fan is part of the fabric of my DNA at this point in my life. And I know my so other friends of mine make fun of me. My family thinks I'm over the top. My brother thinks I'm eccentric. Yes, I just made another brother reference on this podcast. But, but it's a part of who I am. I, I live and die and breathe Seton Hall basketball. I, I work, I schedule my life around it. I make sure that I don't miss a game. We're doing this podcast. It's a part of who I am. And there are tons of other fans out there that kind of share that same experience that bleed blue. And I can't have that void exist again in relativity to this season. I just can't. I want 2020 to be behind us already. I'm, I'm just... I'm flat out emotionally over it. You know, shortages of toilet paper, working from home, socially distancing. Tommy, and I want, no, 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 no. I need my sports back. And I don't need a 60 game baseball season with a sham of a playoffs with everybody in the league getting in. I don't need isolated bubbles with no fans and home court advantage. So I know you want me to be excited that the season is right here in front of us, but something's just off, man. The, the juice is missing. You know, the uncertainty of it all completely overrules the anticipation. 
you know, you're going to tell me throughout this episode to just focus on the hope. But my heart right now is just kind of filled with despair because of this damn coronavirus. Tommy, make me a believer. Make me a believer. Mikey, that's what makes you, you, and me, me. Mike, I'm telling you this. All I kept telling the family this year is you just got to roll with it. You just got to roll with the changes and see what's going, and you just got to be positive about it. I know it's hard to be positive. Just the other day, Seton Hall stopped all basketball-related activities because of a positive test of one of the players. Yes, that means our season has been thrown into an unknown, Mike. I get it. I get it. Which makes makes me laugh more than anything else. Why am I laughing? For all those guys that did the season previews two months ago, one month ago. Hell, we are two weeks away from what is supposed to be the start of the college basketball season. And we're, and I think we're doing this too early. We got to get closer to the season. But Mike, I'm going to make you excited. We're going to bring on someone to have a conversation with us today that is the most excitable, the hardest working man in college basketball, Mike. John Fanta of Fox Sports is joining us today, Mike. And if he doesn't get you excited, no one does. How about you just make sure you got John booked again for next week after 50 million things change between the time you drop this podcast on Monday morning versus what happens by the next weekend. Jeez, I don't know I mean. if I could get John on the schedule again, Mike. He's here. He's there. He's doing Q&A sessions over the summer after Indians baseball games. He's commenting about every football game known to men. I don't know that I can get him on anymore. No, I know. I, I know we're joking, but the landscape is changing so quickly. Normally, you know, we're joking about the new cycle of sports and how it only lasts for 24 hours. College basketball is a little bit different, right? You can get away with the new cycle kind of being a week to week kind of kind of process with recapping games and how the the AP top 25 is readjusted and you know who's moved up in the college standings. Right now, if you're not tied to Twitter around the clock, you are missing out in major changes as to how this season potentially could play out. And that's frustrating. We're fans, Tommy. We're not professional reporters here. We're not doing this for a dime. We keep on saying that. We bleed blue because we're fanatical. We're fans. And we just want to see games being played. And we want to talk about something that's fun. Not the morbid, not the bleak, not the unknown, and not the ultimate catastrophe, which is potentially not having another NCAA tournament. I just, I'm sorry. I'm being a little cynical. You're going to call me a Debbie Downer. You're going to introduce me as Eeyore for those who can relate. Back in the day on this podcast, yeah, Eeyore. Again, I'm just going to say, I don't have any, I don't have any words of wisdom here or magic spells that are going to make you into a happy person. This has been the longest year of everybody's life who's alive. And all I can see is college basketball as that beacon of light, that beacon of hope that's just shining on me. I'll take 24 games. I'll take 20 games. I'll take 13 games. I'll take any amount of games that they can play to cheer me up, and I'm going to roll with it, Mike. Tommy, just promise me one thing. When we get John on the episode today, we get through the coronavirus BS. Yes, we have to talk about it. It's in the forefront of college basketball right now, but this is the season preview episode. You want to give me hope? You want to give me something to look forward to? Let's make sure that the majority of what we talk about is the players, the schedule, the dynamic of moving on from Miles Powell. Let's let's pretend 
that there is going to be a season and we're actually going to play some basketball. Absolutely, Mike. My favorite thing about this is the players, Mike. I want to see a senior season for Miles Kale. I want to see a senior season for Sandro. And yes, Mike, we will cover this in depth with the man himself. All right, then let's bring John on and let's get this started. He is the hardest working man in college basketball and Cleveland, Ohio's favorite son. College basketball play-by-play personality for Fox Sports, host of the Big East Shootaround, and most recently debuted as co-host of Demetrius and a Splash of Fanta, the newest podcast for the Field of 68. Please welcome back to Left Coast Pirates Live, John Fanta. John, how are you today? I am pumped up, Tom and Mike. The Left Coast Pirates have me energized and sparked as if I I had energy coming in the interview. You, you just gave me more. That was fantastic. That is the best introduction I have ever received. Tom, have you ever given Mike an introduction like that? No, Mike doesn't deserve those kind of introductions. I surrender. I'm not ready to bring this kind of energy to the podcast today with you two. Anyhow, John, the last time we spoke was right before the Big East tournament, and shortly thereafter, the world seemed to come to a stop, but you certainly didn't. You kept busy all through the summer. Man, we followed you on the Full Court Press podcast. We listened to you during the baseball season as you had a nightly Q&A session after Indian games, and now you've got this new podcast with Demetrius Nichols, who played a little basketball for some small upstate New York school. Man, John, how do you keep the energy up, John? It's the energy that we all as fans have. And if I have the blessing of being able to cover these different sports, albeit a lot from home, it is the very least that I can do. Everything should start with energy. And in the last eight months, we've needed that. You know, I received some texts from some folks that have watched and paid attention and looked at this piece, and they've said, thank you. And in all honesty, that humbles me. It really does humble me that somebody takes the time to say thank you in terms of the fact that they needed to read that basketball piece. They wanted to watch that live Periscope. They needed to listen to that podcast to just take their brain off everything that has happened. Over the last eight months, it's been an unfortunate time for everybody. And for me, to have the honor to still cover sports and, frankly, to keep the jobs that I have during a time where other people haven't been as fortunate and that's not anything on their talent, uh, it's just a, a sign of the times, there's not a day, and I mean this, there is not a day that I wake up and I do not count the blessings that I have the fact that I have a job, a healthy family, and that there's people who pay attention and follow and and watch and listen. So I keep the energy because it is the very least. It is it is the foundation of everything. All that information, all the things that we're giving people, that's all that's all things that are needed too. But I keep the energy because it's always been with me. I've always had a passion for this, and I always will. Tom, you're gonna have to speak for yourself, man. I was not listening to John's Cleveland Indian postgame rap because I was too busy celebrating that my Yankees sweeping John's Indians right out the door in the first round. The best in the best two out of three. I don't even know if I can. That doesn't even sound right. In the best two out of three divisional playoff round or wild card round of the playoffs. It was a. Uh, yeah, hey, nice you're, you're on the cusp. 
You're no longer the best New York baseball organization. Oh. That changed this week. John, that, that cuts deep, John. That, that, that changed deep. this week. Well, Steve well, Cohen's not well, here to sweep the Indians in the wild card series. Well, Steve Cohen's here to win a World Series. Well, Keep well, counting your rings, Yankee fans. Keep <laughs> counting your rings. You haven't won in 11 years. We, we might have to edit some of this quickly. stuff out, man. All right. We are we are going off the rails quickly today, folks. All right, John, th- thank you once again for joining the show. Um, we need to keep asking this question because life has not changed. How are you and your family doing relative to COVID-19? Everybody's doing well. Everybody's healthy. Um, this has been, you know, in, in a way, it's been a blessing uh, for me because when I, uh, when the Big East tournament and everything else got stopped March 11th, uh, I immediately booked a flight back from New Jersey to Cleveland um, to be back home with my family. In, in all honesty, I don't see my—I don't get a chance to see my family back home very much because of just the art of the job that that I have, and I'm, I love the job that I have. But uh, it's kind of people ask me, "Are you dating anyone?" I'm dating my job uh, because that's that's kind of the commitment level. Um, but I went right home to to family and. Um, my grandpa's my biggest influence in my life, has always been. He taught me my love for sports. We'd watch games all the time together. And he was in a nursing home uh, about a month month into, he was a, a month into being in a nursing home when I came home in March. And um, when COVID shut everything down, they weren't allowing him visitors. Well, a week into my time in Cleveland, you know, things happen. Uh, I believe that God has a way and uh, that things happen for a reason. Um, my mom's divorced. She does not have any siblings. She has a, a, had a, a mom and my grandma who's 84 and my grandpa, Papa is 88. So he is now from a nursing home. They determined that, that he's not going to be able to build himself back up. He's going to go into a hospice care facility. So by being in the hospice care facility, uh, the blessing was they did allow visitors because it is considered to be in those end chapters. Now, very, very luckily, he had about two and a half months, three months left, which when the moment that they said he's going to hospice and yes, visitors are allowed, um, I put my mask on and went right up to that hospice care facility and pretty much every day for the next couple of months, I I would work, I'd get meetings done, I'd get podcast tapings done and when I could find three or four hours, it could be from five to eight. If I had a pocket to 12 to two, but I would, my mom, you know, works nine to five. Um, so she couldn't necessarily just drop everything. She has to hold her job in these times, especially I'd get in the car, I'd pick up my grandma who's 84 and not, not driving. And we get to that hospice care. My mom would come from work. My siblings would come in. And so then, you know, to be there with my grandpa, who's my best friend, and be able to be there with him under normal circumstances, it wouldn't have necessarily gone that way. It would have been the busiest time of year. But I got to spend that time. And it was kind of my my thanks back to him, but also just the love that we share and have always had. Because I haven't been in Cleveland regularly for about seven, eight years, this, this was such a blessing for me to be home and uh, to be with him. And I was with him all the way up until his final breath. Um, and that was such a powerful, powerful experience. And to, to then go from that, um, my grandma had a broken heart. Wasn't the same after he passed away. Um, she died in July. So this has been a really 
uh, challenging seven, eight months, but it has been a blessing to be home and we are doing okay. Everybody in, in my family is healthy and safe and understanding that these holidays coming up are going to be tough for us without my grandparents. Well, John, thank you for up and sharing. That was, that was obviously personal and deep and you have the condolences from us and the rest of Pirate Nation behind you. Oh, thank you. Thank you guys. And, uh, you know, when I, when I said I was going to Seton Hall in 2013, my grandparents were so, you know, at first, so sad that I was going all the way to New Jersey from Ohio. Well, as time went on and they were following via laptop, you know, old school Dell laptop, they had it in their dining room. They'd, they'd click on everything and get things, get videos up and start watching some TV games that I was doing. They saw just how great of a place Seton Hall was. And they saw that it was just the perfect match. So uh, they were pirate fans from Cleveland, but uh, they were two of my best friends and I'll love them forever and carry on the, the legacy that they leave. But yes, it, it, if you're at, you know, how, how is everybody doing? I'm just, I'm glad everybody's doing okay. And we've been able to kind of come together even closer during these times. All right, John. So I'm going to make one request as we progress through this episode. So once again, thank you for sharing. But after we get through uh, the initial coronavirus talk that's tearing down college basketball, because that's what we have to do, right? It's, it's in the forefront of what's going on in the sport. I'm going to ask you to do me one favor, and I want you to take off the Field of 68 Media Podcast hat. I want you to take off the Fox Sports Broadcaster hat. I want you to take off the Biggie Shootaround hat. And I want you to go back to your Pirate Sports Network days and put on those blue colored glasses that I know you still have, all right? I want you to deep dive with Tom and I, everything that's Seton Hall basketball. I want you to bleed blue again for this upcoming season. Can you do that for us, John? Or has John Fan elevated himself to the national stage of college basketball already? South Orange is home. And it always <laughs> Don't let those just, Xavier guys fool you with that Xavier banner that they've gave you last night, John. I don't want to see that. We're talking pirate yeah. blue today. If I had my pirate cap, it would have been perfect. It's somewhere around the house here. <laughs> I've got my blue on, and I'm ready to talk pirates. Let's go. All right. So, so here, here's the format for today's episode. We're going to do what do we know, what do we don't know, and what do we hope for, all right? Because that just kind of feels like what we need right now. Everybody needs a little bit of hope, all right? So either yeah. Tom and I are going to moderate the subject matter, and then I'll, we'll let the other two people banter it back and forth. I'll kind of lead off. Let's do COVID-19-related impacts to the season and beyond. What do we know? We know that right now the NCAA is recommending the program's quarantine for all Tier 1 positive tests for 14 days, plus the ramp-up time to kind of reacclimate. We've already seen within the Big East itself, Marquette, Villanova, Seton Hall already pause. We've seen numerous teams already shut down once for the year. And I think there's currently 20 plus programs that are already actively in a shutdown status. We've seen games already canceled for the start of the season. And we've also seen the Ivy League just announced cancellation of all their winter sports calendar. In addition to that, the NCAA is kind of getting ahead of the curve. They've already announced that all winter athletes are granted an extra year of eligibility, regardless of their year in school. What don't we know? We really don't know how the different conferences and venues are going to collaborate with each other and the NCAA to get a regular season and NCAA tournament complete, because we know that that's paramount for the success of the sport going forward. So what do we hope for? 
John, I'm going to start this one off with you. The last time that you and I were on the show, you and I were condemning the Ivy League for canceling their conference tournament. And here we are eight months later, and the Ivy League is taking that same type of initiative to shut things down first again. Now, now I understand, you know, they are not as financially driven by the sport as let's say the Big East, but are they taking the right approach in terms of the safety procedures and protocol that we should be putting as a focus around our student athletes that we love and cheer for? Well, I think a couple of variables here. So number one, what caused the total stoppage of college basketball? It was the stoppage of the NBA. It was the Rudy Gobert case, and then the NBA saying we're suspending our season. Nothing was going to take place after that, and, and college was going to follow the pro models. As we have seen in this year of 2020, as time has gone on, where college football had a path to play because the NBA, Major League Baseball, of course, the NFL, have shown that there is a path available. And MLB, by traveling, that was the, that was the best thing that could have ever happened to college football because they showed, yeah, a travel schedule could be held. College sports are totally different. And the NCAA governs college basketball. That's not the case in college football. These conferences, the power conferences, the college football playoff committee, it's all amongst the schools and those leagues. With the Ivy League, of course, they're the smartest people in the room. And when they made that basketball decision, look, that after the fact, I mean, they were the, they saw it before we all did. And that was very smart. By the same token, they, did not make an effort to, to play any football in the fall, to play anything in the fall. This should really come as no surprise. Sports are not a priority at Ivy League schools because they are not one of the main revenue streams for Ivy League schools. With the risks outweighing the idea of playing Ivy League sports at a university where it's not essential for you to continue to thrive the way you have. It makes sense as to why they did that. And I do think we could see the Patriot League uh, and other smaller conferences potentially follow something similar to this. But it's very hard, as we've seen 15, 16 college football games get totally canceled due to the virus, for me to sit here and say, that conferences and that coaches of basketball teams, especially power basketball teams, if their teams have tested negative and are negative, why can they play, but we can't play if both our teams are negative? That's what's different in our world. That's what's started. Different. I get it. I get it's it. Different in our world right now. Now, Dan Gavitt, um, senior vice president of basketball in the NCAA, said they're prepared for a November 25th start. That is his way of saying, if you're a conference, it's up to the leagues. We may see leagues say we're doing conference only. In fact, my sources have told me the Big Ten is in talks to do a conference only basketball schedule, which makes sense. Why? They're doing it in football. You know, that's a fair, that's a fair argument. I mean, if football and outdoor sport can only play league only, and you know, only conference games, they did start late. Why in basketball and indoor sport? Are they traveling across the country to play a school that they really don't trust? Don't they have to make a decision like that now 
considering November 25th is just around the corner. They're still talking about it. How are we still planning and talking? We need immediate action to give us some sense of direction. I know it's not, Tom's gonna be going, you, you can't predict see, this stuff. See, John, this is where Mike's real life occupation takes him into directions where he doesn't understand that you need to, that sometimes you you keep getting new information in and you're trying to do the best you can with that new information on the fly. There is no plan set out for this. No one, I mean, the world didn't have a plan set for how do we handle a worldwide pandemic. I don't think it's fair to say, hey, college football, college basketball, why aren't you ready for this? Because things change so much, you know, we're talking about changes. We're prepping for this for a little bit, but everything changed when Seton Hall announced that all basketball activities were stopping on campus. We basically had to go back to the drawing board and rewrite things. And that's what happens. I'm okay with things being kind of on the fly here. In the big picture, John, I look at this as we can only mitigate risk at this point. We can only say how we can get to a safer point. A few podcasts ago, we said, we hoped that the guys could be safe and healthy and still progress. So in general, does it stink that they have to go to a 14 day quarantine? Oh, absolutely. And then you gotta reacclimate them into basketball shape because it's not gonna be easy. But it seems to be a safer model than what college football is following, no? In short, uh, I, I guess I get 15 seconds here to respond. In very short, I will say this. The 14-day the quarantine and the idea of holding a season normally with normal travel, those two things can't be true together. So this guideline is just, it's not feasible. You know, for Seton Hall right now to have positive test results coming back, I, I'm looking at any at any story. Like Michigan, here, here's what's frustrating about this. I've gone over my 15 seconds, but here's what's frustrating about this. Tom Izzo gets COVID. His team practices. His team is still practicing. Um, Marquette has one positive test, total shutdown. Can't do anything because the Big East is choosing to follow this guideline. Michigan State basketball is saying we're doing our thing. We're enforcing it the way we're enforcing it. That's bad. In terms of uniformity, and I'm not blaming Michigan State, I'm blaming the association. That's bad leadership. So that's my question. My question is, is there hope that across the different major conferences, will we see uniformity as to how we approach this? That's no, the question I have No, we don't have you. it to begin with. We, we don't have it to begin with. What we can hope for is a season. There's going to be a season because come hell or high water, there has to be. If you don't have a college basketball season in March Madness, no business can lose billions of dollars in back-to-back -back years and continue to, to sustain what it's had. Well, We've already seen furloughs and cuts and layoffs across the NCAA and member schools and member conferences. So you have to have a season. And why? This goes way, 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 way beyond basketball because the driving force in the NCAA monetarily is the NCAA tournament and all the TV deals that come with it. For the NCAA to stay alive, as we know it, you got to have an NCAA basketball season or else the idea of having soccer programs, field hockey, track and field, baseball, softball, and giving out scholarship money, that's going to go away. Well, you know, even, even conference-only schedules is going to be problematic. My, John, this isn't 
20, 30 years ago when conferences were actually regionalized. You know, when I was growing up, you know, basically the Big East was a bus ride away from each other. I mean, you know, the furthest you had to go south in general was Georgetown and the furthest north you had to go up is that small school in upstate New York I was talking about. So even now, take a look at the Big East. Say we go conference only. Where? You've got five Midwest schools. You've got six East Coast schools. You need you basically would need two bubbles at that point, no? Yeah, but if it means you're getting games, then that's okay. And I think everybody's there's a lot of people getting caught up on the idea of well, where would you put everybody? Would you do all eleven schools? Remember, they both they have men's and women's programs. Whatever you do for the men, you would be doing for the women. I would regionalize it if if I were doctoring something up. Just start to get games in, and that's why I'm so anxious about November 25th. It was very easy to instantly end the season last year was it was the end of the season you just have march madness for some schools they're already done with their season for most schools actually only 68 make the tournament think of how many teams are already done with their season there's 350 in the sport it was easy to shut it down we were at the start of this virus but my concern with a lot of this is you got to get off the ground in some way we have to see somebody tip off november 25th because once that plane gets in the air, there's ways to pilot it. We've seen sports be able to work. The challenge is college basketball is the first indoor sport that's planning on going in a non-bubble capacity. And I'm of the belief that playing in bubbles should not be an option. It should be the option. It should be the priority right now. And that's where I do think there was a – I do wish there was a little bit more planning. But if I'm the Big East or the Big Ten – I'm, I am potting up. I'm potting up regionally. I'm just starting in December by finding a way to get games in. Find a way to get some games in to just get your feet off the ground. If you have to take Christmas week and, or, you know, 10 days, December 20th to 30th to say, here's how we're going to figure out January and February, then that's how you figure it out. But it's going to be a week-by-week thing. I do have hope. You, you asked earlier, Mike, about, you know, what do we hope for? I have hope that we will have a season. We're going to have a college basketball season, but it's very, very fluid. I'm just a little concerned about the integrity of the tournament itself. I'm a purist, right? So you're going to seed all these teams, but without a non-conference schedule, how do you really do that? Nothing is pure about this year. Nothing's pure. If you're a purist, this is not the year for you. In fact, it's not the year for anybody. And I would say this, college basketball, if they – we're going to see a 68-team field or some, you know, modulated form of it. And you could say it disgruntles me that, you know, the NCAA tournament field is going to be all messed up and how does the committee figure this out? And I understand your, your complaints. I'm not saying that this is a fair comparison, but I'll compare it. Let's look at unbeaten Cincinnati and unbeaten BYU. They have to, they have to wake up today and just hope that the cards align for them in the sport of college football just for them to have a chance to make their playoff system. What kind of a postseason is that? It's ridiculous. That's every year, John. That's that's every year for the smaller schools in football, John. Come on. But 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 I'm saying I'm saying that that, that postseason format's always messed up. In college I basketball, it. I, I the best, it. it's still still COVID or not, the NCAA tournament's the best postseason in sports. Don't, don't listen to Mike being a purist, John. He enjoys the first four in thing. So, I mean, you know, we've got 68 teams right now. So don't listen to him. He's a purist when it suits him. 
Yeah, and I thought Mike was the moderator. Now I'm disagreeing with him. My, my point is, right. my point is, Mike. I just don't. You, the idea of being a purist this year, it's just got to go out the window. Nothing about this season is going to make a whole lot of sense. Right. I, I, but if I, we I, have a season, if we have a season, and if Seton Hall basketball is playing games, you'll be happy. So, so let's do this. Let, let's take this concept of it being a weird year and, and transition and say, based on it being a weird year, obviously we already mentioned that the NCAA has agreed to allow all athletes to pick up an extra year of eligibility. Let's keep it centri- centrally focused around Seton Hall. Which players do you see possibly taking advantage of this opportunity? Tom, I'll, I'll throw it to you first. What kind of players? I think players that aren't going to necessarily play at that next level, that want maybe an extra year of school, like they, they want to go get their master's in school or something, but still know that they could contribute to the team. So what's that mean in for Seton Hall? I don't think someone like Sandro takes that extra year. I don't think – I actually don't think Miles Kale takes that extra, extra year. But someone probably like Shavar Reynolds, he might be thinking to himself, hey, I can get my master's and move on because Shavar's not going to play at the next level. Uh, he's not playing professionally anywhere. You know, he's going to take, he's going to be the best ringer on some corporate team somewhere along the line. John, do you think some of the underclassmen are going to think ahead and say, all right, this suits well for my development in a Seton Hall program? Seton Hall's great at their developing their players. It's another year for me. Either prepare for the NBA, prepare for Europe. How do you see that playing out with guys like Jared Roden, Tyree Samuel, some of the younger guys on the roster? I think if you have to resort to a fifth year to try to get yourself further ready for the NBA, you probably didn't go about it the right way for the first four years. I mean, that's just my that, – that becomes a pipe dream in my opinion. What's a fifth year really going to do as opposed to being able to go overseas and grab money and start to capitalize on your young age? I think Shavar Reynolds could take advantage of a fifth year, could absolutely do it, could go and pursue his master's potentially and then be able to, to come out with a couple of degrees and, and have a situation in which he's really set up for professional life. But I don't think there's another player. Like Miles Kale, I don't see it. Sandro, of course not. Uh, Bryce Aiken, no. Um, I, I don't think that there's anybody on this roster right now that I would sit here and say they're thinking about a fifth year. Jared Roden's not. Tyree Samuel thinks that, you know, he can be a player that takes a big leap. I don't think they're giving any thought to, yeah, I'm going to stay in college for five years. I I don't see that happening. Well, since we're going to start talking about players, let's talk about Seton Hall as a team. And and what will their identity be like in 2020-21? So what do we know about this? Well, we know that three key pieces are gone. Everybody knows that all-world player Miles Powell is no longer part of the team. Biggie's Defensive Player of the Year, Roe Gill, has graduated. And the point guard, the floor general, Quincy McKnight, is out. So these starters combined for a huge amount of the minutes and numbers from Seton Hall last year. 53% of the team's scoring, 51% of the three-point attempts, 55% of the team's assists, and 60% of the team's blocks. So, but what don't we know? We don't know whether this team this team can score at a pace similar to last year's team, which ranked third in the Big East. Will they become a better team defensively like uh, Coach Willard has already alluded to? And, you know, before we throw it to you two guys, Coach Willard was on a podcast earlier this week with Goodman and Hummel, and he had this to say about the team's identity. I think we're going to be much, you know, we're going to be much better offensively uh, just because uh, Tyree Samuels and Sandra will play together a ton. Um, and, 
Tyrese was really, you know, we, we struggled a little bit at the end of the year because Tyrese Samuels got hurt. And uh, Jared Roden, I think, is going to be a first-team all, all Big East player. Uh, Miles Kale is going to have a chance to kind of not just be the guy who has to defend the other team's best player. Um, if I can get Bryce healthy, I think he's as good at any guard in the league. And, you know, we still have Ike. You know, Ike's a seven-foot-one shot blocking. So we still have that presence that Roe gave us last year. Um, to call Mosin, who's a transfer from Canisius, is, he reminds me of Alpha Diallo, junkyard dog, man, just gets it done. So I think I, I can play big. I, I can go Ike, Tyrese, Sandro on the back line and play big on the zone. Or, or I can go small with, you know, Jared, Sandro, uh, Miles Kale, you know, Bryce Aiken and Shabar Reynolds um, and really kind of press and, and switch man to man. So this time I can see Mike jumping at the bit here. Mike, go ahead. What are your thoughts first? Willard gives you a lot of optimism and all the things he's uh, kind of giving you a, a look into. But you always have to be concerned when you lose a transcendent player like Miles Powell. Let, let's go back and look at some of the games last year where they did not have Miles on the court. Uh, I know there was the Stony Brook game that kind of hit him out of nowhere with the sprained ankle, but that team struggled to find its legs until late into the second half and only scored 74 points that game. Then you had the Rutgers game where, once again, out of nowhere he has the concussion and we don't find out till the second half that he's out of commission, but they failed to break 50. And then even preparing for the Maryland game, and I know it was a slow-it-down, muck-it-up defensive approach, that team only scored 52 points on the board. And I also know that the last two games that I just alluded to also didn't have Sandro on the floor. But the reality is the offense was geared around Miles, and I think the team was reliant on Miles being that guy, and that's going to be a mindset that's a major change for everybody on this roster. Now, don't get me wrong. They're not devoid of experience. You have seven rotational players that are going to be upperclassmen on this roster. My concern is the experience that they have with each other on the court. Molson was a sit-out transfer. It's a graduate transfer. I, he only played 10 minutes a game, and Kale had his minutes reduced from 30 minutes a game as a sophomore down to 23. And unfortunately, pairing all this with the coronavirus and the pause in play and the lack of Aiken getting practice in full five-on-five -five contact, actually get all these guys to mesh. I, I, I'm concerned. You know, I mean, Willard talks about all these different types of offensive sets and how he's going to balance things differently. But are we going to run offense through Sandro, or is he going to go back to his bread and butter, which dominant pick and roll, pick and pop offense? And is that going to be Aiken facilitating it? Is that going to be him and Ike? Is that going to be him and Sandro? Let's not lose fact or sight of the fact that Bryce Aiken, through all his time at Hartford, only averaged 2.7 assists per game, and he had a less than one to one assist to turnover ratio. So we're back to once again a lead guard running the offense with an unfamiliar set of cast of characters and they haven't had any practice time. I don't know what this identity is going to be. And I'm kind of concerned. Well, I think that you do have reason to be concerned. And I think that as Kevin Willard's talking about Tyree Samuel, I like Tyree Samuel, but he, he had a very weird off season like everybody did in college basketball. And I think for every college player, it's going to be hard to show a major leap or, or take a major jump when you haven't had as much instruction from your coach or haven't had as much time to really groom your game. And that's my concern with Samuel. We see a lot of, of potential. He's got a six foot 10 frame. He can hit a three, but we just didn't see him enough last year to say, okay, I'm confident that he's going to take the next step in his career. Jared Roden could be an all biggie second team player. Maybe 
I don't think that he's a first-team caliber talent in this league. I think he's a talented player. I really do. Uh, he's got to be crucial. For me, this season comes down to two things. Number one, and most importantly, Bryce Aiken has to stay healthy or else this Seton Hall team could be sixth, seventh, eighth in the Big East. I mean, that's and, – and the reason why that's such a big question is because Aiken's been more injured than he has been healthy. That's a problem. And that's something that's very much uh, on my mind as we enter this season. And then number two, is Miles Kale going to finally show us a sign of consistency? You know, he has not been able to show us that he can consistently knock down shots. Remember that Georgetown home game at the Prudential Center last year? Miles Kale was lighting it up. I think he had four or five threes in the first half alone. And that, I'm not saying that has to happen every game, four or five threes in the first half, but he's got to provide more of a consistent presence in his ability to knock down shots. And so that is a concern here heading into this year is, I don't think Kale will have to hunt as many shots. You don't have to when Miles Powell has graduated. But Mike's right in that I, I do think one, one point I would disagree with him on is he said so much was around Powell. Yeah, but, but Tom, I think we both saw that other players evolved when Powell was either hurt, remember the win over Maryland, or even in Big East play when Powell had some weak home performances. I mean – he averaged well over 25 points per game in Big East road games right around there. But when Seton Hall was at home and Powell struggled, Quincy McKnight stepped up, Romaro Gill stepped up. But those guys are gone too now. And I think we don't, we don't take into account as much of how well those two played. Gill was the most improved and defensive player of the year in the Big East last year. That's gone. And again, with Obiagu, he's kind of unproven. He is unproven. Was that because Gill was that much better? Or was that because of Obiagu's injury? There's a lot of, there's more questions than answers with Seton Hall heading into this year. And if you're betting on them and confident in them, you're doing that because of the past five years. But this is certainly a team that entering this year, Seton Hall hasn't had this many kind of questions uh, in, in a little bit of time. I think that this is a team that's a top 40-ish team in college basketball. Can they beat the 15th-ranked team on any given night? Absolutely. But they need Sandro to be that A guy, and they need Aiken to stay healthy. If Bryce Aiken is not healthy for this team, which is a big question mark, then like I said, Seton Hall, for me, I don't know if they're a top-five team in the Big East. I understand the concerns. Your, your point about this team having more questions is, is, is right there. You hit the nail on the head. I mean, this, question, this team has nothing but ifs and buts on it. If Aikens can stay healthy, if Kale can become consistent, and more importantly, they're already projecting him as a two. He's never played two in his college career. He's always been that three. If Roden can make that jump from that kind of super energy guy to a steady player, if Ike develops, and most importantly, John, I think the point's going to come down if Sandro can remain consistent from whistle to whistle. He has not shown that he can can necessarily be uh, until the end of last year in the last eight games where he really was consistent, had a great performance at Marquette. You know, the first question was, how is this team going to play? And you guys played that quote. That was a lot of player breakdowns. But the question was, how is this team going to play? To answer that question, they're going to have to play fast. 
They're going to have to play fast. I don't think this team can get stuck in the half court uh, because I, I don't I don't really love them in the half court. I don't know if I love Kale and Roden's offensive game enough that I'm going to sit here and say I would rely on them in the half court. This team is going to have to play up-tempo basketball. You have a unicorn in six foot eleven, Sandro Mamukelashvili. You've got to utilize that that a player that unique. You're not going to be able to take advantage of a player that skilled just by being in half-court basketball. So I think they've got to play up-tempo. I don't know if they're a great defensive team. Like Tyree Samuel, not, I don't know if he's that good of a defender. We haven't seen enough. Ike Obiagu's slow-footed. Mike, I am concerned about this front court. I would say that right now. And well, last year, Tomorrow go was so good. He was so good. He removed shots. He played such a presence. And, and that's what we're doing. We're talking about team identity, not individual player growth. I know we're going to talk about that more uh, in the next couple of questions. Willard keeps on saying he thinks this is going to be his best defensive team. And I think we are downplaying the contributions that we got from Quincy McKnight and Romaro Gill. And I think there are pieces to potentially backfill. I think they're going to, people are going to like what they see out of Takal Molson. Uh, Ike has potential, but to ask them to backfill the production that you got from those two guys and create that defensive identity that Willard likes to fall back when his teams do not perform in the half court. That's where I'm concerned. I think people are kind of getting bamboozled by a lot of the projection of what players can do offensively and losing sight of where this team identity is going to be. I think it has to be fast, like John said, but defensively, they got to find ways to muck it up. I don't know if they have the personnel to do that. He's saying that he thinks this is the best defensive team because for them to be at their best, they're going to have to play defense to that level. But that's not the you same, know, the though. That's not the same. It's just not. I, I, I know. I know that. that he's, it's attempting to will it into existence. When you say that, your team hears it, you inspire confidence. Here's what we do know. Shavar Reynolds is a lockdown defender. That's a big positive. I, but Shavar is also I, not going to be your starting five, though. You're going to have Shavar rotationally in there to just kind of fill fill gaps defensively. You need to have your solid your solid starting five create that identity. And if you're telling me Shavar is on or to end games as my starting five, I don't want to go down a Shavar rabbit hole. I get a little concerned about that because he's not our five best players. Yeah, I, I would not be surprised if Shavar Reynolds starts from time to time and if he's finishing some games. It's happened before, so that would not be shocking, but I, I have my own opinion. If you could have a Kale, Roden, Molson competition at the two or three, and Shavar is stealing minutes, that, uh, once again, I just it's a separate topic from team identity. I just think yeah, we're kind of Mike, taking a step back. But guys, what miles Kale am I getting? You know who's getting a lot of pressure to perform right away? I'll, I'll say Taco Molson. I think people are comparing him to last year's Quincy McKnight and forgetting what Quincy was in his junior year. Not that in the junior year Quincy wasn't playing well, but let's all remember, Willard benched Quincy halfway through the Big East season and put put Shavar Reynolds as a start as a point guard to kind of send a message. Quincy wasn't that uber-tough player that he was a senior his junior year it took a year of him getting used to it uh, i disagree quincy was mike I'll, I'll play player. back your podcast comments mike i will uh, go no, back no, to I, the I, tape I, I'll, I'll i'll defend what i said quincy was playing out of position you're you just questioned his toughness and his ability to be that junkyard dog but he was running the offense i've always he was, felt he was a junkyard dog 
Sure, sure. But going into that Georgetown game that they lost in double OT uh, down at their place in a must-win game, Quincy was coming off three straight games of poor point guard play that was bogging down the offense. He was not benched for his lack of effort on the defensive side. He was being benched because there was no continuity on the offensive side of the ball. And that's where I come back to this team identity of, I think Aiken can do it, but we have no track record of him doing it with this collection of players. And normally you need a couple cupcakes. You need practice time. But hold on. You you didn't have a track record of Madison Jones. It took about half the season before Madison Jones even admits himself that he felt comfortable in the wireless system. And you start started seeing that team click and start playing positively on the back end of that Big East schedule. They got off to a rough start in the first half. They believe they were three and six at one point to start the Big East schedule that year. They picked it up on the back end. Is Bryce Aiken the best transfer that Willard's gotten? Absolutely. Absolutely. So there's there's hope and optimism that he's ahead of the curve relative to some of these other guys. Sure. Absolutely. Someone's concerned. <laughs> all right, Tom. Let's, let's, let's I, just, transition. I just want the kid to be healthy. Healthy and happy. That's all I want for the kids. All right. Let, let's do this. We've obviously gotten away from the team identity concept. We want to talk players. Let's talk players. It all starts to me at the top. You got Sandro Mamukelashvili coming back. He is obviously on uh, the Carl Malone watch list. He's first team all preseason Big East. John already mentioned it in his last eight games to end the 1920 campaign. He kind of came into his own 30 minutes a game, 57% from the floor, 50% from three, 90% from the line, 15 points a game, almost eight boards, plus an assist and a half. Let's see what Coach Willard has to say relative to his expectations for Sandro this senior year? Um, I really thought towards the end of last year, um, I think everyone started to see the type of player that he was emerging to be. Um, he was, you know, obviously we had Miles, but he was our second best player, um, really dependable. And I think this whole draft process for him gave, gave him a lot of confidence, um, gave him a lot of information uh, for what he has to work on and what teams are looking for. And I just love how aggressive he's been in practice so far. So. Uh, expecting a really big year from him because I think he's he wants it and I think he's ready for it. So I don't doubt that the talent is there, guys. What what I'm not sure about and what we don't know is can Sandro become the alpha dog that this team needs or he's being projected to become? Tom, I'm going to let you take this one the first time. I can't even believe Mike is letting me have this topic, John. There is not a bigger Sandro fanboy in all of Pirate Nation than Mike. And I think this is where I get that bad rap. Mike always says, I don't like Sandro. I love Sandro, but let me just say this. Sandro came onto campus with hugely unrealistic expectations for a three-star recruit. People were incorrectly comparing him to Arturis for various reasons. Personally, I think it's just because they couldn't say his last name. And this wasn't fair to him. And it was actually disrespectful to one of the more successful and celebrated pirates in the last 50 years. And because I point this out, I'm the bad guy. I'm the hater. I'm the one that says, Sandro, stop shrugging. Stop giving me the Sandro shrug. But just because people are desirous of a player to reach a certain level doesn't mean it's going to happen. Outside of these last final eight games, if you ask me to describe Sandro's time at the Hall, I would use the word inconsistent. 
He disappears too frequently for my likings. There have been games where he's a world beater. Absolutely shooting, scoring, grabbing boards, blocking for the first four minutes of the game. And then he disappears for big, long stretches. And then last year against Providence, he disappeared to such a point, he grabbed one rebound in 21 minutes of play. He's 6'11". How is that possible? So in all honesty, I need that consistency from him. I need to know what I'm getting from him night in, night out. We all know he's uber talented. I mean, 6'11", good jumper, really good handle. I mean, he's he was really the key of breaking down the press last year when he came back from injury. Really good passer, good vision, good enough on defense. But with all that, he should be the number one guy in this team. And yet we're sitting there thinking Aiken has to be the man to really be that number well, one. Come on. No, no, no. With all that. Save me, John. I disagree, Tom. I disagree wholeheartedly. Sandro Mamoukelashvili is the best player on this Seton Hall team. Bryce Aiken is the most important. You can't just not have a point guard. It's a guard's game. And if you don't have Bryce Aiken, that means a freshman in Jahari Long or potentially a combo of Reynolds and Molson or Kale are, are, are being your primary ball handlers. That's set up for failure. That's John set Fanta, up for we haven't had a real point guard in five years. We keep getting these I'm combo gonna bring, guys. Come on. I'm going to I'm gonna bring McKnight you both back to the topic guard. at hand. McKnight was a good point guard. Talking about Sandro, give me what you think about Sandro as being a top dog here. He is a top dog. He is a top dog. Part, part of the reason why he wasn't breaking out all the time last year is because you have an All-American. You have the Jerry West Award winner on your team. There's only one basketball. There's only one basketball. You can't play through everybody at the same time. Not everybody can be Villanova, okay? So I do think that for Seton Hall, we know that in the half-court offense, that's never been something that they've necessarily been great at. And that might be putting it a little bit kindly. Uh, it's it's always been kind of a work in progress. College basketball is that. We've seen less and less high shooting percentages as a result of where the sport is trended. It's not just Seton Hall. It's a lot of the sport. My point is, Sandro really knows that this is his team. Last year was not his team. It was not. It John, was not his team. John, He's how many times have we had a big-time player on the team and the second guy is still consistent? I just want consistency, John. He is, he was consistent at the back half of last year and even at the beginning of the year. Cherry-picking eight games doesn't make consistency. Okay, wait. All right, fine. So then I'll pick the first eight games last season. Had an 11-5, and 17-5, and 9-7. and seven. 17 and 7. He did uh he only played 13 minutes against Florida A and M. That doesn't count. 10 and 4 against Oregon. That was an off day. He did not play well that game. 14 and 7. 18 and 6. And then two games against Iowa State and DePaul, in which he was he was just injured slash coming back from injury. He really was good at the beginning of last year for the most part and at the end of last year. He got injured. He was coming back from a major injury. John, even with those big games, there's points in time when he gets three minutes of really good ball and then disappears for 15 minutes. I don't need him to score all those times. 
grab a rebound, block a shot. There's plenty of times when he just goes away. See, Tom, Tom's going back to the Wofford game in the first round of the NCAA tournament. No, I'm ago, not going. The first five minutes, he was, he was all over the floor in the first five minutes, and Tom's like, where'd he go the rest of the game? Let it go, Tom. Stop holding on to these moments. No, I'm I, all I'm I want hurt. is consistency. I don't need the guy to be a 24 and 10 or whatever the numbers comes up. Give me consistency. Be that guy throughout the entire game. I love him. I you. I just don't. Let I just go. wasn't giving him the big props that you were. Love him. You I do. Love I him. love the kid. He's an All Big East first team preseason selection. He'll be on the first team at the end of the year. And let me tell you this: if he plays his best basketball, he is the best player in this conference. Ooh, now well, there's a good point. Not a sniff of him to being talked about as a preseason player of the year, but. The goal is to be the best power forward in the country, or is the country that in that much of a dearth of power Uh, forwards where a guy who can't win is wrong? That's where you're wrong because Miles Powell was the Big East Player of the Year. He was the Jerry West Award winner. Sadiq Bay wasn't even a Big East Player of the Year candidate, and he won the Carl. Malone, uh, no, not Carl Malone. He won the Julius Serving Small Forward Award. I think that's more for the uh, voters than it is for the for the award. Marcus Howard was the um, leading scorer in the nation. He was a finalist for point guard of the year. Don't, I don't want to hear that, that there's that big of a difference between the Big East and, and being a national player of the year candidate. That Look, there's a lot of great players in the Big East. We've, we saw a race last year between Howard and Powell. They were both national player of the year candidates. So you can, it can be done that you don't win Big East player of the year, but that you do win um, a an award like the Carl Malone Award. Look at Angel Delgado. He wasn't the Big East Player of the Year, and he won the Kareem Abdul-Jabbar Award. He should have won Kareem Abdul-Jabbar two years in a row. Let's not. They gave it to the fat kid from Gonzaga. Let's not talk about that. Let 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 let, let me wrap let me wrap this up here so we can move on. I'm going to summarize. John Fant is right. Tom, you're wrong. <laughs> you know I Who's love John's Sandro. John's right. <laughs> you know I love Sandro. I'm going to have plenty of opportunities to talk about Sandro throughout the rest of the year. So I let you two have at it. I think Sandro has to be a 1A, 1B type partnership with Bryce Aiken for this team to be successful. We talked about who John thinks is going to be the best player for Seton Hall. Let's talk about the guy that John thinks is going to be the most important player, Bryce Aiken. Now, we had a, we've got one final clip here that where Coach Willard talks about how important Bryce is to the team. So let's listen to it. Uh, what I'm excited about Bryce is, you know, he's for the first time in a long time, he's a point guard that really understands the game at a at a coaching level. Um, he sees the game and, and you know calls plays um, where I don't have to do stuff. I don't have to run the team or call plays. You know, he's just one of those. He just has a feel. So. Um, if he can't play a game or two, I mean, Shavar Reynolds is, is is playing phenomenal right now. He's probably our, our best player right now on the court. Um, you know, he doesn't have that pressure on him. He doesn't have to go out and score 30. Is he capable of doing it? Absolutely. Um, and that just makes us, I think, that much more dangerous. But he doesn't have that pressure, or I don't feel that pressure that he has to go out and do that for us. So what do we know about Bryce Aiken? He's a senior grad transfer from Harvard, had a great junior year, 22 points uh, per game, shot 40% from three, shoots free throws, which is very important for a point guard to do, 85% from the line. 
stepped up when the competition was at a higher level. In eight games first Power 5 competition, he averaged almost 18 points per game, highlighted by a 30-point performance against Maryland last year. What don't we know about Bryce? Can he stay healthy? Injuries have limited him to 39 games over the past three seasons. Last year, he only played eight games before getting a medical red shirt. So what do we hope for here, John? Uh, We hope that he stays healthy because if he stays healthy, he has proven that he's a player that's going to really amp it up for that high level of competition, which is what you're going to consistently see on Seton Hall's schedule. You, You just hope that this kid is on the floor for this team. Because if he is, I I do have faith in Seton Hall's ability to continually evolve players. I do have faith that Kevin Willard and him have a good relationship. They had one even before he was at Seton Hall. So I like Aiken and everything there is to like about him. I'm just concerned about him being game in, game out, durable, and, and being that type of guy. And then I think, what do we hope? We hope that he, Jared Roden, Miles Kale to Cal Molson can mesh because if those guys aren't meshing, it's going to be hard to see a real connection in the backcourt. And it might just be Aiken and Sandra. And yeah, those, those guys are important, but for this team to be complete, they need perimeter shooting. And I think that's one thing we haven't talked enough about guys who is hitting shots from beyond the arc consistently. Is it Roden? I mean, he's shown he can, is it Kale? He's shown he can, but he's also shown nights where it's like, is there a breeze inside of the Prudential Center? What's going on? Um, so I think I think that it's very important that he's able to mesh with these guys and be able to hit them with solid passes that allow for perimeter shooting to come naturally and to come consistently. I'm going to take a different angle here, Tom. I, I Everyone's talking about the injury. Everybody's talking about the continuity. I'm going to hope that he can backfill some of that scoring of Miles Powell, not to the extent of 23 a game, but maybe somewhere in that 16 to 18 kind of range where I think people are expecting Sandra to be. I think Sandra is going to be more of a 15 points per game because he's going to have some of those nights where unfortunately he is a little inconsistent that's just who Sandro has been doesn't mean he can't be a complete player but I think because Bryce is on the ball and he's a ball dominant type lead guard he's going to have to have that scoring punch night in and night out I also want to know that we have a guy in crunch time final two minutes of the game that you can put the ball in that guy's hands who's going to make a play and hit a big shot now, I know you always make fun of me when I go back and watch some of these high school recruits and look at their their videos and, oh, look at that dunk, and he had a good three-pointer, and you're like, Mike, throw that tape out the window. But when you go back and watch the highlight videos of Bryce Aiken against Maryland and you watch the high level and difficulty of shots that he was hitting in that game when he had his 30-point effort, that was Miles Powell-esque at times, all right? That was like step-back Steph Curry-type range, and – That means that he's going to be able to create his shot when the offense bogs down and you need a big bucket. And if there's a guy on the floor who's ball dominant that the other teams have to hone in on, that might create double teams. That might open up the floor for a Roden or a Kale or a Sandro to hit a big shot down the stretch as well. You need somebody to kind of just bring all the attention around them. And then even when that attention's on them, step up and make a play. And I think that's who Aiken could be. That's, That's my hope. My other hope is have to have developmental play from Jahari Long because like John said I can't in a condensed schedule play him 35 minutes a night and Willard when the games are tight he relies on his upperclassmen to play big minutes you 
ways to get Shavar, Jahari Long, minutes on the court so he's not overextending himself and maybe playing somewhere a more efficient 28 minutes a night. Because as John said, if Aiken does get hurt, I think this is a bottom third Big East team at that point. Just, just briefly, I would say we have seen evidence of big-time shots from some of the current players on this team even before Bryce Aiken. Sandra Mamukelashvili against Butler last year. Jared Roden against Butler last year. And Hinkle Fieldhouse hit a huge three that sealed the game. Shavar Reynolds has hit big-time shots before, and I, it would not surprise me to see Kevin Willard, if he needed the three leg, go to Shavar with past experience. And Shavar Reynolds' shot is actually somewhat consistent. I'm not saying that's the end-all, be-all answer. I agree with you. Aiken has to be that A-type backcourt guy for this team to be top three or four in the Big East. But I do think it's necessary that if he is, in fact, the point guard, when you're talking about setting up players, Quincy McKnight did an elite job of setting up players. You could say he's not a natural point guard. It's fair. But guess what? He learned very well to become one at Seton Hall. They need Aiken to take some of that. Senior year, most of that Big East uh, conference play, he led the Big East in assists during that season. But I, I think Mike's right, though. I think Jahari Long's got to steal a few minutes here and there at the point guard just to give Aiken the blow. I think last year, a lot of times when you see when you saw Seton Hall go into those lulls, it was partially because Miles was off, and it was partially because there was no point guard, backup point guard play to kind of roll the rest of the offense in. Yeah, That's great point. Miller nailed uh, Anthony Nelson to the bench, though. I mean, you had a point guard. He just didn't trust him. All right. Anthony's having a nice little renaissance at Manhattan. Let's not get into that here. All right. Let, let's talk about guys uh, that are potentially able to step up and fill in some of these secondary roles. We keep on kind of splattering their names all over the conversation so far, but let's drill down to them specifically. What do we know? We know that there's players to pick from in this conversation. You have Miles Kale, a senior previous top 100 recruit a two-year starter he's back you got jared roden second leading returning scorer at over nine points a game believe it or not the team's leading rebounder from last year's roster at 6.4 a game and he shot 45 percent from three in conference play on most projections he's due for a big breakout junior season you also have to call molson junior sit out transfer from canisius previously the mac player of the year Six five two guard, averaged almost 17 points a game. My only concern is he shot 27% from three when the distance was closer before they moved it back. And then to round out the roster, you have the rest of the reserves. You have Ike Obiagu, Tyree Samuel, Shavar Reynolds, plus Ahari Long at point, and Dominguez Stevens at the small forward. What don't we know? We really don't know who the starting five is going to be. There's been a bunch of different ideas tossed around and hypotheticals. And with so many different projections being tossed around, it goes back to that team identity and continuity. So what do we hope for? I'll throw it back to John to get us started this time. I think when we look at this, this team and the supporting cast, what we do not know is what happens consistently in the front court. I mean, guys, I, I can on it a little bit, but I am concerned to a degree about the unknowns with Tyree Samuel and Ike Obiagu. Correct me if I'm wrong, but the expectation now for Obiagu at the five spot for this team is to play 20 minutes a game, 18 minutes a game. But here's the thing. Here's where that goes the other way. You heard Willard say Tyree Samuel and Sandra are going to play a ton. 
this this could be a four out one in team even if they wanted to go five out from time to time they might they might very well be better off doing that but you can never you can never underestimate the presence of a seven footer if you have one you got to find a way to channel that into some results i really think it's important that they find a way to not let Ike Obiago, who I think Sandro Mamoukalos really told me in an interview, you got to just see. He did get injured last year, and Romaro Gill took off, so there really wasn't a role for him. He goes, now there is. He goes, I think with no one behind him, he could evolve. And we know what Grant Billmeyer does with these bigs. But that's a huge question mark is how do they play? Do they go a lot small? Do they find that Ike Obiago can be consistent? Of the supporting cast in the backcourt, we've talked a little bit about that in terms of I don't know if the scoring can be consistent from Roden, Kale, Molson. I'm just not sure. I actually am more confident. I, I'll say this. I'm confident in Jahari Long, and I haven't even seen him play a college game. We haven't seen him play one. But when Willard has said, you know, he's going to play 8 to 10, 12 minutes a game, I believe that. I believe that, and I believe in the idea of Jahari Long. I'm just not sure what happens out on the wing. Well, when we're talking about breakout guys, I think – we need Roden to really become that guy. And I like him because he always seems to be that guy around the ball. He outboards his size completely. And he always seems to slap balls away when they're in the area. And his st- steady improvement from year to year. You know, he, in- he improved this three ball from 25% his freshman year to 34% last year overall. And he did that much better during Big East play. I mean, you could just see him build up. But he's got to do it in the flow. When he kind of goes out of that flow, he kind of loses his mind and takes crazy shots. Here's the thing. I guess, I guess for me, Tom, Tyree Samuel's more of a breakout candidate because I... I don't, I don't know. Like we've seen Jared Roden play a, a great game, right? You're just saying, can he be in the flow again? I think the the buzzword of this podcast is consistently. You know what I mean? Like I, I, Jared Roden's not going to surprise us. Jer, Jared Roden scoring 18 points is not going to surprise us if he if he breaks out in a game because we know he could hit four threes and have a couple of you know cuts to the rim and baskets and things can happen in a, in the course of the game. I, I do think that Samuel has a lot on him because if Willard's saying he's going to play a lot and that means that Obiagu's off the floor, think about it. This front court is, is a little thin. I mean, Trey Jackson transferred. He's obviously sitting out. Um, and they've got some guys that are coming in next year. But the front court is a little thin. Am I am I right in saying that? It absolutely is, and, I, and I'm thinking that's you know it was funny because I think Ike is is this enigma. He's one of those players that makes me question whether we really develop our players as well as our reputation is. I know we uh, have had wait 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 John, let me finish my thought. I know we have developed players, but it just sounds like we plug and play, and if it fails, it's the player's fault. No, I don't buy it. He was productive with FSU in limited minutes. He sat a year. Then this is his third year here, John. If he's not going to be productive now, when is he going to be productive? I think that Grant Billmeyer has shown us what he can do with big men. Obiagu got hurt early in the season, and the coaches said that that was a lingering thing. But what? What were you going to take minutes from Romaro Gill, the Big East defensive and most improved player of the year? You couldn't take minutes from that kid. He was on an absolute roll, and when he came off the floor, it meant they were playing smaller. You didn't have use for another seven-footer. Now is Obiagu's opportunity. It's on both the coaching staff and him as a player 
to live up to what we have heard about him, to live up to the guy that was at Florida State. All right, I have a couple quick thoughts based on some really good points that you both brought to the table here. I think Jared Roden and his ability to break out is not just, hey, can Jared Roden have a good night and score 18? Could teams look at Seton Hall as a three-headed monster going down the road where it's on any given night, you have Roden, Sandro, Aiken that can all put up big nights consecutively like Seton Hall had with Casey Delgado and Desi. That's the potential that Roden could have and maybe be an all second team and honorable mention and give you three dynamic players on offense on every given night. I also agree with John in terms of we don't know what we're going to get out of the five and whoever gets the predominant minutes at the five will kind of go toward that team identity and also go towards what the ceiling of this team can be. If I can, Ike can reproduce some of that defensive fear and productivity that Roe had, well, that, that closes some of the gaps on the defensive end of the ball. If Tyrese can take the next step that everybody believes he could or has the ability to do so, you have more of an interchangeable front court, kind of like Villanova plays, like John said, four out. Uh, Tyrese has proven he can shoot the ball behind the three-point line with consistency. I'm concerned in the front court and who's going to break out. Where are we going to get the consistency on the glass? That, that's my concern. Great point. Great point. And it alludes to what we've talked about with the front court. Where are you going to get the consistency? Because uh, to Tom's point on Sandro, Sandro's not, you know, a top flight rebounder. He averaged six rebounds a game. But he's, because he's a player that stretches the floor, it's tough to transition into being that type of rebounder. Rebounding is a question for this team. Roden is a pretty solid rebounder. They need him to be essential on the glass. Okay, so let's talk to something that's going to drive, drive Mike absolutely crazy because it's an absolute flux. Let's talk schedule. What do oh. we know so far? We already know the Winthrop game has been canceled. They are hoping that the Louisville game is still a possibility, which I can't see if you're talking about a 14-day quarantine and then a seven-day reacclimation period. We've got supposedly Baylor on the 29th, and then December 2nd is University of Rhode Island away. I personally think with everything lining up the way it is, that's probably going to be our first game of the season. So with that being said, what don't we know? Well, you mentioned earlier in the podcast, John, that you think the Big Ten is going to an all-conference schedule. What's that mean? That means Seton Hall Rutgers is going away, and that's not going to happen. So, John, what do you hope for? Mm, I really hope that on November 29th, that Sunday afternoon inside the Prudential Center, Seton Hall and Baylor are tipping off because I don't think the Louisville event's happening. You know, are you are you getting a flight to Louisville to play one game at this point? I, I don't know. Not with not coming off COVID. You might be best just to reacclimate and start on November on yeah, on November 29th. Um, you know, what we know is they've got a couple other games packaged in there. Uh, that trip to Penn State, you know, and look, we know that they have a good non-conference schedule. Would have been even better had they played Winthrop in Louisville. Let me tell you guys, Winthrop was going to be a hard game. That's a good mid-major team. That could have been a scary game, especially for a Seton Hall team that's still figuring things out. Winthrop had a lot of experience back. It might be a blessing in disguise if they're not playing that game. Um, look, I hope that they that if everything works out, that they might play Louisville, but Louisville's pretty good. I don't know if a Seton Hall team would be prepared. Um, it was going to be hard enough, nor alone coming off COVID. I just hope that they're playing Baylor, 
Uh, but if you look at their non-con schedule, you got a couple of, of good matchups, you know, between Baylor and uh, a Penn State team that's rebuilding, but a, it's a Big Ten team and you're on the road. I know that Rutgers people are upset about the fact that that, that game didn't come to fruition. Uh, but you know what? We know that they've got some quality opponents and a conference schedule in December. We also know that every option's on the table. We could see a conference-only slate. And we also know that there could be regionalized pods. There's a ton up in the air. Scheduling is a complete you-know-what show. I need a, a shot to talk about it. All right, Tommy, what do I hope for? I'm kind of along the lines with John here. I just want to see some semblance yeah. of an at-a-conference schedule. I'm hoping that we just kick off the schedule and get this thing rolling. And here, for some selfish reasons, I hope that we have some consistency because John's right. I did my homework on the Winthrop game. They were going to be a Ken Palm, top 115 in the country, returning champs from the Big South. They were going to be a really solid mid-major. That is not the type of opponent that Seton Hall normally starts with out of the gate on a neutral site. So kind of maybe a blessing in disguise that we maybe get started with a, maybe a, a more regionalized opponent in Rhode Island. And it would be a little disappointing if we missed out on the Baylor opportunity. This is not a, a hope comment. I want to do a reflection comment. I think in the initial tenure of Kevin Willard, he took a lot of heat for the lack of conference, non-conference scheduling. And I think Steve Peichel takes some slack for the, 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 the softness of what Rutgers brings to the table on their non-conference schedule. If you look at what they tried to put on the calendar this year, pandemic or not pandemic, you had the Charleston Classic, which was a solid field relative to not being one of the two marquee tournaments in the country. Then with that all blowing up, people forget we were aligned to be in the Wooden Legacy down in Orlando. They were willing to kick off the season against UCLA with a pending matchup against Kansas. And then we fall back in a opportunity where Kevin Willard could have just said, you know what, we're out. We're going to stay local. Let's play St. Pete's. Let's play Princeton. And he puts a Winthrop and Louisville on the schedule and essentially not really a neutral environment. If you ask me that, that's a, that's a road environment. Winthrop doesn't really have to travel. It's on Louisville's campus. And I don't think Willard's getting enough credit for potentially building the type of non-conference schedule that he tried to put in play relative to everything that's going on. And, and we've normally beaten up, beaten him up for that, but he's now made Seton Hall's non-conference schedule a perennial powerhouse, and he's got to get that kind of credit. Good I'm also going to, I'm going to take issue with what's going on with the Rutgers situation. I expect the fans to be fans and complain. Rutgers is finally ranked in the top 25. Seton Hall is ducking us. We got to play the game. That's that's friendly banter back and forth by fans. But why are people like Steve Politi writing articles perpetuating this? He's got to know that the scheduling situation, as John says, you know, is, is a challenge. And, and, and why are we perpetuating that Seton Hall is running for the hills? If you look at this non-conference schedule, Seton Hall was not ducking anybody. Am real I wrong? Talk. Real talk. Okay, real talk. This this can stay absolutely stay in the podcast and should stay in the podcast. That story was written for clicks. It's written for engagement. And it's written to play to all that fan talk. That's why it's written. There wasn't any real reporting in that. It was a carbon copy of Jerry Carino, who's the voice of reason and who covers Seton Hall, Rutgers, and New Jersey basketball regularly. The fact is, there are outlets in New Jersey that care about one school and that care about one sport. And that's Rutgers and football with some wrestling sprinkled in. So let's call facts facts, okay? Uh, the, the fact is, is that the person that covers Seton Hall for said outlet this week 
tweeted that New Jersey schools would be shut down from November 23rd to January 23rd, and that was fake news. It was a lie, it was misreporting and misinformation, and nothing was done to that reporter. Uh, and I'm a media member, and we learned in college, I have a degree from Seton Hall, how I don't know, uh, <laughs> you learn in college what reporting is. I'm not trying to put anybody or anything on blast, but let's call a spade a spade here and understand, Seton Hall doesn't need to play Rutgers. Rutgers doesn't want to hear that, and Seton Hall fans might even get disgruntled by that. It's not like Seton Hall's ducking Rutgers or dodging an opponent. I don't think they are. I think it just didn't work out for the two sides to work out work out the schedule. A lot of people are equivocating this to they're never going to play. Look, like after the agreement expires, the, the agreement, come on, stop it. Stop. That's terrible. That's ridiculous, too. And I've told Jerry Carino that's not going to happen. And Jerry's a friend of mine, and I, I'm saying it on this podcast. I told him to him it's not going to happen. The series isn't going to stop. That said, the one fair argument that I would bring up is if you're local and you're in the same state, you should find a way to play your game because this year games are at a premium. So, so John, just taking a little tangent off here, since you already think I'm crazy with most of my takes – the New Jersey Hardwood Classic. I've kind of po- I've I've said this to Mike over and over. Why not expand this to a few more teams in Jersey and make it into a little bit of a of a tournament, if you will? Get a Princeton, get a Monmouth in, get you know, you know, even if it's just a four team tournament, oh. get it in there and play a couple games. Wouldn't that be a little more interesting? So where's the event? Atlantic City? I've been in California now, John, for 25 years. You tell me where they could play it outside of the rock or the rack. Personally, play it at the rack and split up the revenue. I don't care. Play it. I I don't think Kevin Willard would do that. And I don't think Monmouth or Princeton are giving up their home game to go play over at a campus. Atlantic City's one thing. Yeah, maybe Atlantic City could be an option. What, what if there was a collective share of the gate, though? What if it rotated back from the Rock to Rutgers and there was a collective pool of sharing the gate? Financially, Seton Hall and Rutgers are making more off their own gates than they would be by splitting the gate with a couple of little guys. Throwing out hypotheticals. So, I mean, that's why we're Okay, having- okay. Out of financials, wouldn't it be fun, though, John? It'd be fantastic. Uh, all right. That's what I was looking for, John. That's I'm excited. What I, was I, can, I can cover the games and then stay the night in Atlantic City and do things that will never be recorded. <laughs> oh, jeez. we got to make it out to Vegas. Come out to the left coast, John. We'll have some fun out here. All right, gentlemen, let's kind of bring this to a head. We got one more topic to cover. Obviously, to wrap up the season preview, we got to give our predictions. What do we know? We know that Seton Hall was picked fifth in the coaches' preseason poll. They were behind Villanova and Creighton as the unquestionable top two teams in the conference. What do we don't know? After those top two teams, is it's anyone's guess where the rest of the conference is going to play out. And also, as many teams that have big potential, there are as big of question marks for all those teams as well. I'll highlight one. You got Marcus Howard not there for Marquette anymore. The, the Hauser brothers have moved on last year. That's a complete team, in my opinion, in a rebuild. But there are some people that still have Marquette high on their projections. So a lot of we don't know. And, Tom, I'm going to throw this one to you to start off. Give me your final prediction on where you think Seton Hall is going to rank and where the Big East is going to play out this year. We talked a lot about team identity, whether they were going to fuse, play as one, but I think health is going to be the key for this team. Obviously, getting past the stoppage and making sure Aikens plays an entire season. If Aiken gets hurt 
and long doesn't develop quickly, you can just take the Jolly Roger down and pull up the white flag. But, you know, in general, I think I think third place is the, this team's ceiling. I think Nova and, and Creighton are going to be way too good to uh, get past those first two spots. Yeah, well said, Tom. I think that this is dependent on Bryce Aiken's health because he is this team's most important player. It doesn't mean he's their best player. That belongs to Sandro Mamoukelashvili. Uh, but I think that the the key for Seton Hall, again, is are they finding that Jared Roden, Miles Cal, to Kyle Molson are able to fill the roles of complementary pieces. When those three guys are flourishing, Seton Hall is going to be a very tough out. Tyree Samuel has to play better basketball. He's going to get more of a shot to do so. Will it translate? We'll see. Tough to really develop as a player when you've had an offseason like this one. It's something we got to consider as we're talking about this unprecedented season. Uh, I think – my where I would put Seton Hall is fourth in the Big East. Uh, Providence did lose six seniors. David Duke and AJ Reeves have been players that have dealt with inconsistencies. UConn, how do they get how do they become accustomed to this league? Do they soar with flying colors? You know, do they just roll past all those middling teams? I find that hard to believe. I do. I think UConn's a tournament team, but I don't know if they're just surging along and cruising back into this league as a top-tier team. That said, I put Seton Hall around fourth. I put them fourth. I think to Tom's point, I would not put the ceiling at three. My ceiling's two because Tyshawn Alexander uh, heading to the NBA draft, it's a big blow to Creighton. It's bigger than what they are getting accounted for. They're, they're 12th. They're 11th in the AP poll. I would have picked them around 15 to 18 in the AP poll. John, okay, I'm going to paraphrase you. I'm going to paraphrase you. Tyshawn may have been their best player, but Marcus Zagorowski is their most important player. I actually think I disagree uh, because Alexander defensively was the most, he was the best defensive player, according to Ken Palm, in the Big East last year. Creighton in the past has been a softer team. Last year, Alexander gave them a toughness. They've always had pretty good guard play, and Zagorowski's an All-American, but I do think Alexander leaving Uh, means that he was still Alexander finished in the top three in the Big East in scoring last year. People seem to forget that. And he was the best defender in the conference. You could argue about him as player of the year. You know, unfortunately for him, he played in the league where Miles Powell played. Seton Hall, to me, finishes fourth. Sandro Mamukalashvili is on the first team. I think Jared Roden gets some, some sort of an honor. I think that the Pirates are an NCAA tournament team. I have these teams going to the NCAA tournament out of the Big East. Villanova, Creighton, Seton Hall, Providence, UConn, and number six. There's a sixth team they're going to be playing in Dayton. St. John's. I can already see it in his eyes that he was going St. John's. He loves Mike Anderson. He loves the tenacity. He, the, the players buy in. I, John's a big St. John's guy. I, I get it. And I get the reasons why. Uh, I'm mad at you, John. I'm always picking on Tom when we do these recaps that he's stealing my thunder. Damn you, you stole my thunder. I completely agree that Seton Hall has a wide range for where they can finish. So people putting them fifth, some prognostications third, like you said, an injury or two, and they could be as far down as eighth. I think they'll be in contention for somewhere between a seven and 10 seed in the NCAA tournament. I think that's kind of their ceiling, but if all the cards break, right, I'm with you. I think Nova is in a class of their own. And I think not saying Creighton's vulnerable, 
but I think Seton Hall can play with Creighton if the guys that we talk about potentially breaking out, the Ike Obiagus creating a defensive presence, Tyree Samuel giving them another piece in the front court, Jared Roden in the front court becoming an all-Big East Conference player. That's a distinct matchup advantage for Seton Hall in a Creighton-Seton Hall matchup. Yes, Creighton could score the basketball, but they do not have the front court firepower that Seton Hall possibly can roll out and put on the floor. And if those guys reach some of the ceilings that we talked about on this podcast, yes, absolutely Seton Hall could be second neck and neck with Creighton down the stretch. And I could be wrong. Maybe they could be a four or five seed. I think that's putting the cart way before the horse. But I think we what we've done is we said there's a lot of hope for the season. There's a lot of uncertainty for the season. And I think that kind of aligns very similarly with how this Seton Hall roster is constructed. So welcome to 2020. The coronavirus continues to impact us. It's going to be a wild ride. But what Seton Hall season has not been a roller coaster of up and downs in the Willard, Kevin Willard regime? I mean, I just I wouldn't have it any other way. Great, great way to put it. Uh, and you know what? Let's hope, knock on wood, if you're going to every team or most teams are going to have some sort of disruption or problems. Hopefully for Seton Hall, this is their only one and they get it out of the way as opposed to having it be during the season. Well, John, as always, you are gold on the mic. We can't thank you enough for spending some quality time with us. Saturdays, football's on and you still talked college basketball. John, thank you so much. Tom, Mike, what you guys have done with Left Coast Pirates is sensational. Uh, there's no competition for it in the Pirate fan base. It's such a great pod. I love coming on. I consider myself an honorary member of the Left Coast Pirates Club. And thank you so much for having me. You, you guys know I love joining you. Lots of laughs, lots of fun, lots of insight. You guys always bring it uh, every single podcast episode. So thanks for having me and keep on crushing it because you guys are doing it. John Fanta, everybody. Thanks for joining us for another episode of Left Coast Pirates. Be sure to follow us on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or any other of your favorite listening platforms. Also be sure to follow us on Twitter with our handle at Pirates. We are also proud members of the What You Expect network of podcasts. And don't miss out on any of our previous episodes that include Interviews with Seton Hall legends, Danny Calandrillo, Mark Bryant, Andrew Gaze, Shaheen Holloway, and many others. For Tom Kaharski, I'm Mike Desiri, and you've been listening to Left Coast Pirates.